right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Monday already. Monday, March 9th, 2009. Of crazy stuff going on in the world. And uh, we'll be commenting on some of that because that's what we do here. Oh, uh, yeah. In case you don't know, I'm a little opinionated. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment designed to help you to think critically, to think biblically, to learn how to compare what people say, whether it be me, your pastor, or anybody else who's a Christian leader, to the very words of God themselves. That's right. It's a, it's, this is an exercise in sola scriptura, if you would. So I got to warn you ahead of time. This program could cause you to have supreme dissatisfaction in your pastor, especially if your pastor isn't, well, let's say given the goods, given up the goods when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and has uh, instead found some more important things to do to uh, preach on, like, you know, life change because we all need our lives change all right we got a good program lined up today we got some listener email we'll talk a little bit about that pastor that was shot in illinois what a that was terrible what a sad 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 story that is and uh we're gonna be the let's see i got a new story here from regarding the illinois uh, high school association Apparently, they've uh, come up with a ban that uh, they're trying to impose. Well, let's say they're imposing on Christian schools. We'll talk about that. Uh, We've got a piece uh, from CNN or Headline News now. There's no longer two CNNs on television. There's Headline News and then there's CNN. And over at Headline News this morning, they were talking about the decline of religion in America. We're going to play that piece from Headline News and uh, talk a little bit about that. And then uh, we're going to read a story, or a, I think this is an op-ed piece from uh, the Star-Telegram. And uh, Preacher says, uh, Biblical Church is vanishing from America. So we're going to respond to that. And then we got a, a sermon for you that <laughs> I know you all are just excited about. Last week I told you that uh, I would probably find a sermon that dealt with the sex topic. Well, we're going to be listening to a sermon called Crazy Love. Crazy love, because apparently Christianity is all about having crazy love. Isn't that great? Don't don't you just feel the love tonight? And so uh, the uh, the sermon in particular, crazy love was the name of the sermon series, if you can call it a sermon series. And sermon number one, if you can call it a sermon, is called attraction. And so it, apparently this is a pastor who's going to be telling us unlocking the hidden romantic secrets of that book called The Song of Solomon. So uh, light a candle, put on some muse, mood music, and get comfy as we uh, review Crazy Love. That'll be it <laughs> toward the tail end of the program today. And I know you're all excited to do that because, you know, I enjoy those Crazy Love sermons too myself. I mean, I need that kind of advice. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, we're... Uh, let's see here. Okay, first email right off the bat is about this uh, story uh, regarding the pastor that lost his life. 
in uh, in Maryville, Illinois. And I, we have to tell you, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy, and we do not want to make light of this. And there's this kind of a there's a sub story to this story that I also think is tragic. And uh, received an email from Scott Gherkin that that pointed this out. And uh, what I thought I would do here is uh, we'll pay uh, Robin Mead from Morning Express. Uh, discussing this terrible story out of Maryville, Illinois. So uh, let, let me play the story first, and then we'll uh, we'll respond to what Scott Gherkin said. Hang on a second here. Okay, Robin, where's your voice? Where's your sound? Huh? All right. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Having small technical difficulties right off the bat. Here we go. Scientific data now. Okay, Richard, thank you. Sure. 32 minutes past the hour now. Some members of an Illinois church who watched their pastor get killed at first thought the attack was part of some skit. One woman said that the suspect... Got to stop right there. That Okay, this the story is terrible. And I actually went on to uh, the website for this church, and it's First Baptist Church in Maryville, Illinois. And... Um, Sadly, it's it's one of these mega church kind of purpose driven, change your life type churches, and really tragic that you know, kind of the way the news story is is playing out is that uh, this guy was shot while he was on stage, and they thought it was part of a skit. Right now, some members of an Illinois church who watched their pastor get killed at first thought the attack was part of some skit. One woman said that the suspect walked down the aisle and the pastor, Fred Winters, asked him, brother, can I help you? But he started shooting. A member who tackled the gunman said he had to do something. Listen how another member described what happened. And we just sat down in a chair and pop, pop, pop. Well, we just couldn't imagine what happened. And some, they ran out. 911, the pastor's down, been shot. Well, after the shooter's gun jammed, he pulled out a knife. Well, he and two members who tackled him were injured. The gunman's injuries are very serious. The others are non-life-threatening. A bullet hit the pastor's Bible, and witnesses say it kind of looked confetti when the paper sprayed everywhere. A man in Australia ended up... Just a terrible, terrible, sad story. So our thoughts and prayers are with the folks there in Maryville, Illinois, you know, with the loss of their pastor and and just having to witness somebody being murdered in front of their eyes. Just cannot imagine what that would be like and don't want to have to imagine it. So, folks, keep these people in your prayers. And and, uh, let me read Scott Gherkin's email here. He says, you know, the pastor who was shot and killed during a church service today in Maryville, Illinois, and um, apparently that's right around the the uh, corner from where Todd and Jeff are from uh, issues, etc. And so Scott says, don't get me wrong. This is tragic. However, it makes me wonder how many pastors may rethink their antics on stage at church. He says, if, you know, I, Scott, I don't honestly know if um, this is one of those p- churches that engaged in antics you know yeah they subscribed to a different way of doing church that you know and their messages were all about life change and were a lot more seeker friendly um which you know which we can assume that you know the people there at the church were not unfamiliar with having skits and little dramas um he says uh scott continues he says if something does indeed happen that puts a pastor's life in jeopardy and the congregation doesn't know any better 
How much uh, would the delay uh, caused by thinking that this was a skit cost in terms of medical attention? I don't think it's going to make much of a difference in this particular case, Scott. I mean, it, it sounds like he, he was shot several times, and, you know, uh, in that particular case, it, seconds wouldn't have really made the difference. And uh, so, again, our thoughts and prayers need to go out to the folks in Maryville, Illinois, and pray that through this tragedy, that Christ would be exalted, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mercy of of Jesus Christ would be extended to the people in that community and in that church, and that um, and that somehow through this, you know, God would be well. We want to say glorified. We want Him to be glorified, but that God would, you know, that that this would work out in a way that Christ could be glorified. All right. Um, Moving on, got another email here. This is from Matt Sim, and Matt is in Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, he's he starts off, uh, Chris, I, I should have taken your warning more seriously about fighting for the faith, causing dissatisfaction with the preaching at my church. Also, the L in my tulip has recently been plucked thanks to other shows on PCR. <laughs> Uh-oh, he's not a limited atonement guy anymore. So you're a four-point Calvinist now, Matt? Uh, anyway, he says, I, now I'm getting myself into trouble at, by being too outspoken. I, I know what that's like. <laughs> I know it's going to be hard for you guys to believe this, but uh, Roseboro can be a, a little too outspoken at times, too. And surprise of surprises is it's gotten me in trouble from time to time. Anyway, so Matt, you're in good company there. He says, you know... The worst non-smoker is an ex-smoker. I agree. I understand that. Yeah, that's what I tell people about myself sometimes too. But not that I was a smoker, but that you know, when it, I'm an ex-evangelical. So the worst non-evangelical is an ex-evangelical. So he said recently we had a sermon from Luke 10 at my church on the Good Samaritan, and I felt that the sermon was rather law-heavy. So I sent the pastor my reflections on the passage, and since then he has forwarded it to some other pastors to get their feedback. He even pointed out that some of them are Reformed or Sovereign Grace, and one is a mutual friend of Michael Horton's. Apparently all the feedback included words like unbalanced, extreme, and narrow-minded. Really? <laughs> I've never had anybody say those things about myself, but this isn't about me. This is about you, Matt. So (laughs) he says, so now I'm coming to you for answers. Am I completely misreading you? Please take a look at my brief commentary on Luke 10. And would you characterize it as imbalanced, extreme, or narrow-minded? And so Matt from Hamilton, Ontario, actually sent to me not only the uh, the gospel lesson from Luke 10 but also just some you know his commentary and some observations regarding this passage and so we're, we're gonna see um, if uh, Matt from Hamilton Ontario is unbalanced extreme and narrow-minded which by the way um, just by the way of narrow-minded remember that Jesus Christ said that broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life so in some sense, being narrow-minded is a good thing. All right, so we continue. All right, so here, here's the passage in question. This is Mark, uh, Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up in front of him. Well, see, that's the problem. It's a lawyer. Uh, uh, sorry. <clears throat> Andrew Deloach, if you're listening, I apologize. <laughs> he says, and behold, a lawyer stood up 
to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's an attorney would know better. Okay, you you don't earn an inheritance. Anyway, he says, so Jesus said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Just remember here, folks, the law is love. Love is the commandment of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. The gospel is not love. And there's a lot of people out there who think that, oh, you know, we've gone from having to have the law rule over us to now being ruled over by love. And those are people who don't understand that love is the commandment of the law. We continue. So, uh, and he said to him, well, Jesus said to him, well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That, that's kind of the fun part about the law. Do it and you will live. Well, I don't do it. All right. So, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Mm-hmm. said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I wonder if he said it snottily. Anyway, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but the Samaritan As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. All right, so there's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, now understand this, Matt. Interpreting parables is a little bit of an art, okay? And, you know, you have to, in order to get your bearing in the parable, you got to figure out who's who and what's what and who's doing what, okay? So you ask these questions. Here's, here's Matt's commentary that he wants me to see if, I, if, if he was misreading the passage, um, if, if he was being unbalanced, extreme, and narrow minded, okay? So Matt asks, he says, Are you like this Samaritan? Do you love your neighbor? Do you make neighbors out of strangers, nobodies, or even enemies? Do you always do it without fail, joyfully? Do you freely sacrifice your scheduled trip and cash on hand? Do you throw a few bucks at the problem, lend a hand, and then walk away? Or do you promise to return, not knowing what it may cost by by then? If you desire to justify yourself, then this is your standard. Go and do likewise. <laughs> Matt, this is actually really good. I like what you've done here. Your, so your opening paragraph in your commentary, and it's only three paragraphs long, is you're using the, the actions of this Samaritan as a benchmark in a way. Because remember, the context in, in your do, what you're doing is actually just fine. The context here is the, is the law. Okay, and um, and so the the lawyer asked Jesus a question. You know, well, actually, Jesus asked him. You know, what must I do to eternal uh, inherit eternal life? You shall love the Lord your God with all. Okay, 
Anyway, so so the answer that the attorney gave back was a law question. Love God, love your neighbor. And he wanted to justify himself. So when what you've done here, the pers- the good person in the parable is the Samaritan. That it, That's not me and that's not you. And so you're rightfully taking what the Samaritan did and showing this guy loved God and loved neighbor in a ridiculous way at that. And so your questions actually are doing a fine job of asking the tough questions about, you know, that what any pastor should ask us regarding the law. But see, there's gospel in here, and let's see where this goes. He's, so Matt continues. He says, um, so are, or are you nameless and half dead? Do you need a Samaritan who will rescue you, even though you have nothing to offer in return? <laughs> this is great. He says, are you scared, bloody, and festering, ashamed of your helplessness? Would someone even come near? If you have nothing to offer but your wretchedness, there is one who makes himself a neighbor to all mankind and promises to return for you. No, this is not narrow-minded. This is great. So Matt continues, he says, So do not be anxious and troubled over how to be a Samaritan. If you seek to justify yourself, the law will always condemn you. Instead, marvel at the mercy of the one true Samaritan who will not be taken from you. Brilliant. Brilliant. Excellent. Great job. You got it. And Matt, that's the thing, okay? You've successfully identified and you use the law lawfully. You use the law lawfully. You're, the the point of your of your summary of this wasn't to say now, folks. What you need to do is you need to be more Samaritan like, because that's kind of a ridiculous proposition. And your questions were poignant and right to it, pointing out the fact that we are not Samaritan like. I'm not. You're not. Anybody listening to the program today, you're not either. Okay, so. You know, yes, we are commanded by God to love God and love our neighbor, but the problem is, is that we don't. So what you've done here is you've identified Jesus as the Samaritan, which is is a great way to do it, okay? You've identified yourself as the bloody and beaten fellow. <laughs> and no, this is great. <sighs> I'm, You know, Matt, what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to put a link up to... Um, a, a, a show segment from Issues Etc. They recently, uh, maybe a month, month and a half ago, did uh, a series on interpreting the parables. And Pastor William Swirla from Holy Trinity Lutheran Church did an interview with Todd Wilkin on this parable. And I, I think you're going to find that you did a you did a very very good job with this parable and you were not being unbalanced you were not being extreme you were not being narrow minded your questions were tough and used the law lawfully to kill us your solution was Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and just wonderfully and skillfully done. I think you get an A today. Absolutely. Great job, Matt. You're not narrow-minded, unless, of course, we're defining narrow-minded as Christ crucified for our sins and the law preached lawfully to condemn us. Good job. So, all right. I hope that helps you. Don't, don't, you're good at this, Matt. Uh, keep doing it. You should consider maybe even going into the ministry. Just, I'm serious. All right. Um, okay. Decline in religion. Oh, what do I? Okay. We're going to do this next story. 
And as part of our tradition here, when we do news stories, we have our uh, vintage news story music that's imperative that we play. Here we go. Headline. Illinois High School Association tells private schools they can't pray before games. That's right. You heard that right. Let me read it again. The Illinois High School Association has told private schools they can't pray before games. This is from the Alliance Defense Fund. Sorry. <clears throat> the Alliance Defense Fund. Uh, the, head, the dateline is from Bloomington, Illinois. The Alliance Defense Fund attorneys urged the Illinois High School Association in a letter sent Wednesday to terminate its policy banning private schools from praying or delivering religious messages over public address systems before Illinois High School Association tournament games hosted at private schools. So let me summarize that for you. Basically what's happened is, is the Illinois High School Association has told private Christian schools or private religious schools that if, if they are to host a... Illinois High School Association tournament game, a sporting event, if you would. Any sporting events that are hosted as that are part of the Illinois High School Association, that private Christian institution or private religious school cannot, on their own property, even though it's a religious organization and private property, cannot use their, re- their PA system or public address system to have prayer or to broadcast, if you would, religious messages. Uh, ADF attorneys also offered the uh, Illinois High School Association free legal representation in the event that it is sued for rescinding its new rule if it decides to do so. Quote, Christians shouldn't be censored from expressing their beliefs, especially not on their own private property, said ADF Senior Legal Counsel David Cortman. It is blatantly unconstitutional for public schools to come into private schools and enforce a policy prohibiting them from expressing what's central to their religious beliefs. And that is absolutely right. Folks, again, Christianity is under attack around the world and it's here in america if you think that christians are not being persecuted in america you're wrong you're not looking at the right place and the thing is is that it's getting more and more blatant in this particular case you have the illinois high school association acting as if they have the jurisdiction legally to tell a private christian institution they can't have a prayer on their own property oh that's i mean there's some legal problems here Galore. The story continues. After allegedly receiving a few complaints from people who didn't like the prayers and religious announcements at the private schools, Illinois High School Association instituted a new rule prohibiting all prayer or religious messages given over PA systems prior to uh, sporting events, even when they are held on private property. The ADF letter to the Illinois High School Association Executive Director, Mr. Dr. Marty Hickman, explains that the new policy is both needless and unconstitutional because private schools, prayers, and religious announcements prior to games are in no way a state endorsement of religion. That's right. They are in no way a state endorsement of religion. You know, let me pull up a copy of the Constitution here. I think I have it on my iPhone. Hold on on a second here. 
All right, let's see here. I want to pull this up because, you know, just owning, by the way, if you don't own a copy of the Constitution, you really should. And uh, not that it's the Bible because it's not. That's that's really not the point of it. Hang on a second here. All right, let's see. That's weird. All right, here we go. U.S. Constitution. Apologize for the delay. Let's see here. Okay. The amendments. Here we go. Right to bear arms. Religion. Here we go. Okay. The Constitution, by the way, words written that have meaning. Amendment number one in the Bill of Rights reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Okay. Everyone now says, when when they talk about the first amendment, they say the first amendment promises the uh, separation of church and state. Uh, No, it actually, that's not the right way of putting it. If you read the constitution for yourself, you'll learn how to think constitutionally. Just like the way you need to think biblically. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech. All right? So here's the deal. The Illinois High School Association has stepped in and uh, basically uh, absconded authority that they do not have. They do not have the authority to tell a private Christian institution that they cannot hold a prayer on their private property prior to a sporting event. Why? Because the Constitution makes it clear that the where the limits of Congress lie, or the limits of the government lie, they lie in not respecting the establishment of a particular religion, or, or prohibiting the free exercise of it. See, that's the second part of that particular statement. It's not – so government shall not establish a religion or prohibit the free exercise of religion. Okay, just because you, you, your Christian school is part of the Illinois High School Association and participates in league play uh, regarding inter, you know, intercur- you know, in, it's sports that occur at, at the high school level, I'll like, say football, basketball, baseball, whatever, volleyball, you name the sport – um, that if the private Christian school is hosting that sporting event and their team is participating in it, the state doesn't have the right. The Illinois High School Association does not have the right to tell the Christian school they cannot have a prayer there. That's not within their jurisdiction. That's outside of their constitutional powers, so to speak, or the constitutional powers of the Illinois High School Association. So I'm glad to see that uh, the Alliance Defense Fund is coming to the aid of uh, of the of these uh, Christian institutions there. And uh, we would hope that uh, Doctor, oh, what's this gentleman's name here, Doctor Marty Hickman, um, realizes that uh, he really needs to change his tune here because they don't have the authority to do this. So keep that in prayer. Again, it's just another example. We don't want any religious speech here in the United States. No, we got to get those Christians to be quiet. Okay, let's see here. Looking through my program notes. You know what? We're up on our first break. Tell you what, when we get back from our first break, we're going to be um, listening to another news story from uh, Headline News 
about the decline of religion in America, and I want to make some points regarding this, and then we're going to piggyback on that story uh, from the Star-Telegram. Preacher says biblical church is vanishing from America, and I think that this the person making this claim is spot on. Things are really bad here from a religious point of view. And uh, we Christians who understand the gospel, understand the message of the gospel, we, we need to... Uh, uh, we need to prayerfully consider being bold with preaching the gospel and reaching out to people with the truth because there's some reasons why things are on the decline here. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we will be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian turtle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven, inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do, chief weapons are, our chief weapons are, um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. Okay. Stop, stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged 
with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough. Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That was the theme of our 2008-2009 school year at St. Peter's Lutheran Day School in Plymouth, Michigan. We're planning for the next school year with an open house on March 22nd. For more details, please see our website, www.stpetersLutheranPlymouth.org, or call us at 734-453-0460. That's 734-453-0460. there, Pirate Christian Radio listener. Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear. Don't be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio t-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to pay our bills and continue to bring you this important outreach. You can uh, partner with us if you're growing in Christ, if you are growing in discernment, if you are learning how to think more biblically, more critically, how to take and compare what people are saying to the Word of God, understanding of sound doctrine, how to defend the Christian faith, uh, then partner with us. You could do so by uh, logging on to uh, fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on the Donate button. That's one of the ways you can do it. Or or you could uh, uh, send in your gift, make your checks payable to Fighting for the Faith, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. Uh, There's a story I want to play for you. This is from Headline News and uh, Robin Mead in the morning. Um, And the the, the gist of this story has to do with the fact that there's a huge decline in religion in America. And let me play the story for you so that you can uh, get the baseline for what we're talking about here. And I want to comment on this. And, you know, let's listen. Here's Robin Mead from Morning Express on uh, Headline News. 
Americans could be losing their faith. A new study finds that the percentage of Christians in the United States is falling. They make up 76% of the adult population versus 86% back in the year 1990. And now more people say that they're not religious at all, no matter what religion they are. Well, the number of people who answered that way went up in all 50 states. So you tell me your opinion. Why are Americans losing their religion no matter what religion it is? Do you see evidence of that or maybe the complete opposite where you live? One viewer text message saying, I don't think that there is a lack of religion. I just think that there's a revamped outlook on it so people don't identify with the Christian views of 1950. Lucas. All right, got to stop there. So apparently religion is on the decline here in America and, uh, and she's wanting to know why. Well, they didn't take my text message, by the way. It was probably a little too long and had some big words. You know, the, you can't text message things like substitutionary atonement, and yeah, you, know, you just you just can't do it. But um, religion is on the decline in the United States. Why? Well, I can speak about one of the reasons why it's on the decline in Christianity and why Christ the overall percentage of Christians in America has so miserably decreased during the greatest era of, quote, church growth pundits in the world, right? I mean, church growth experts are a dime a dozen. You've got the purpose-driven life. You've got purpose-driven church. You've got uh, Bill Hybels and his leadership institute out there training pastors on how to grow their churches. And in the midst of all of the so-called church growth, apparently Americans aren't going for it. Makes you wonder what kind of growth is occurring in those churches where that have adopted these church growth strategies. Well, the reality is, is that God's kingdom doesn't grow by our expertise. It doesn't grow by our methods. God's kingdom does not happen as a result of us sitting down and cleverly devising ways in which to really bring them in. No, God's kingdom grows when repentance and the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ. When people's sins are are slammed to the wall and they're shown to be somebody who is not righteous but unrighteous, somebody who was a wretched sinner in need of a Savior, and, and Christ Jesus, crucified for our sins, is offered as the solution to the problem that we have. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans chapter 10 says. So you want to grow God's kingdom? Preach the word. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the method that God the Holy Spirit has said that he will bless. All this other stuff... It's a distraction. And it creates, if it creates disciples at all, in many cases it doesn't, then they're not mature disciples and the roots are about as shallow as shallow gets. And when the first signs of trouble show up, uh, you know, the cares of the world, it just chokes it all out, withers it up, makes it so that they're not productive and producing fruit. On the heels of that, let me read this story here from the uh, the Star-Telegram today. 
Actually, this is from Saturday, February 28th. Uh, Jim Jones, uh, they're not the cult leader Jim Jones. That guy's dead and has been for a long time. Uh, he writes for the uh, Star-Telegraph. He, the headline reads, Preacher says biblical church is vanishing from America. The Reverend Bob Pearl says a different kind of church has arisen in America. In vast auditoriums and smaller places, people listen to preachers who roam the stage and tickle the ears with feel-good messages. It makes you wonder if... Uh, the Reverend Bob Pearl listens to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Probably not. Uh, in fact, it, you don't have to listen to Pirate Christian Radio to see there's a problem in the United States. There's many biblical pastors who get it. The story continues. Many of those church, churches follow Walmart strategies for pleasing customers, but often soft soap, hard biblical truths like hell, sin, and salvation. Pearl declares in his recent book, The Vanishing Church, Searching for Significance in the 21st Century. Pearl is the pastor of Fort Worth's Birchman Baptist Church and president of the grapevine-based Southern Baptists of Texas, which is a conservative state convention. He doesn't hold that churches are literally vanishing since they are all there are all kinds of churches often filled to overflowing in our neck of the woods yeah that's right it's not that this is an important distinction here pearl's not saying that the church is vanishing oh there's churches everywhere that's not what he means pearl says what i'm saying is that the biblical New Testament church is vanishing from society today. Anything and everything is acceptable as long as it builds a crowd. Jesus wasn't as interested in building a crowd as he was in telling the truth. Seeker-sensitive churches take surveys to find out what the unchurched want, then build their product to meet consumer demand, he said. It's a bankrupt philosophy. Our responsibility as pastors and leaders is not to give people what they want necessarily, but what they need. Pastor Pearl, to that I say, amen. You're right. The story continues. Also, weakening the American church, he said, are what he calls unbiblical actions of the Episcopal Church and other denominations in tolerating, tolerating same-sex and gay and lesbian clergy. Absolutely, he's right about this. Any Christian pastor who calls himself a Christian, he's been given the job of holding the line on what the Bible says is right and wrong, good and evil. And uh, when a church ordains same-sex marriage or gay and lesbian clergy or even female clergy, they're in, they are in rebellion to the Word of God. And that definitely is eroding at the biblical church. Sociologist Wade Clark Roof, author of Spiritual Marketplace, Baby Boomers and the Remaking of American Religion, and professor of religious studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara, says Pearl is responding in a literalistic, fundamentalist context. Hey, Matt from Ontario, are you listening to this? Notice that Pastor Pearl here is telling us biblically something that is true. And uh, Jim Jones from the Star-Telegram got the opinion of somebody who's a little bit more open-minded. And apparently, what's the worst thing that you could be labeled as? Being a literalistic, fundamentalist, <laughs> narrow-minded is another way of saying that. This is, uh, <clears throat> this is Wade Clark Roof. The individualist... Indivi- <clears throat> take two, sorry. 
Quote, the individualistic piety associated with fundamentalism is increasingly empty to people looking for religion to address social justice issues, and that is why Warren and others like it are growing, Roof says. He was referring to the Reverend Rick Warren's Saddleback Community Church in Lake Forest. Yeah, remember Robin Mead? She says, I don't think that uh, the, the, one of their, their uh, text messengers says, I don't think that there is a lack of religion. I just think there's a revamped outlook on, on it so that people don't identify with the Christian views of 1950. Uh, you know what's funny is, is that uh, Christianity did not begin in 1950, and I'm kind of getting tired of this particular claim. Christianity, if you really want to be correct in understanding when Christianity truly began, Christianity truly began all the way back at the beginning. All true worship of the one true God is Christianity from the beginning of time until the end of time. You can find the church in the Old Testament. The church in the Old Testament is made up of those who believe and trust in the coming Savior, the one that was promised. We now, in time, look backwards to the one who was not only promised, but the one who came, who came, who lived, who died, who died for our sins, lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. This isn't the 1950s Christianity that we're talking about. We're talking about the historic Christian biblical faith from all time. All right. Now we're going to continue the story. This, I think this is rather interesting. So apparently this uh, liberal sociologist uh, it seems to think that uh, that let me read the quote again from this liberal sociologist from the University of Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB, Wade Clark Roof. Quote: The individualistic piety associated with fundamentalism is increasingly empty to people looking for religion to address social justice issues. So, yeah, that's a problem. We want religion in our image. So Roof acknowledges that there is a danger in social gospel trends if personal faith becomes weakened as liberal Protestantism shows. Pearl, who rejects the label of a fundamentalist, says declining membership in many mainline Protestant groups results from watering down core biblical teachings. He's right. He believes that evangelicals who do that suffer the same will suffer the same fate, and I agree with him too. In fact, functionally, uh, the, this purpose-driven gospel stuff, it's, it's, it's synonymous with the liberalism of the 19th 1920s. Even though these people say that they that they're conservative and believe uh, and believe in all of the sound doctrines of Christianity, the problem is they don't teach it, and the result's going to be the same thing: complete decline, complete vacuous liberalism from all these megachurches is coming in the future, if the Lord should tarry that long. All right, um, we continue. Um, okay, so uh, Pearl believes that evangelicals who do that will suffer the same fate. Quote, you have to hear the bad news that we are sinners before you receive the good news of salvation, Pearl says. This guy sounds like me. Anyway, Elaine Heath, author of The Mystic Way of Evangelicalism, a contemplative vision for Christian outreach, says preaching about hell and damnation isn't the best strategy to win converts. Really? Um, Jesus did it. Uh, the apostles did it. Uh, who, who are you, uh, Elaine Heath, to tell us what the best strategy is? You're not an expert in this area. Jesus is. And whether or not you think it works or not, who cares? This is what Christ has instructed us to do. 
So, all right, we continue. All right. Um, so this is Elaine Heath. When missional evangelistic Christians like me refuse to lead with threats of hell, preferring instead to lead with the good news of God's love, it's a move away from the tradition. Uh, but a move tw- it's, it's not a move away from the tradition, but a move toward the ancient tradition. No, it's not. Uh, said Heath, assistant professor of evangelism at Southern Methodist University, Perkins School of Theology. And it's a move that touches people's heart and hearts and lives with hope and healing and an invitation to receive the transforming love of God. Pearl responds, he says, he's, for, he's all for preaching God's love as long as it includes biblical truth. You see, the thing is, is that we, you, those of you out there, you missional, evangelistic, post-emergent, contemplative types, um, here's a problem. If you, all you're doing is telling me about God's love, you're telling me nothing about God. God is love. God is love. Isn't that great? God loves us. God, yeah. Really. Scripture is clear. It says that, you know, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The, there's a context for Christ's love. There's a context for God's love. And that is, is that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Lost? Yeah, that's right. The lost are sinners. And hell is a very real place where very real people end up going. That's why we preach the good news, so that Christ will turn the hearts of some, give them faith, and give them repentance, so that they don't have to go there. Anyway, so Pearl, all right, so Pearl's book also voices concern about Baptist churches that establish satellite campuses where a minister presides over several campuses and his sermons are projected by satellite onto screens in different locations during worship services. Yeah, we call that here, uh, what do we call that, pastoral pornography? Uh, it's, it's not real. You don't really have a real uh, relationship with your pastor. He's not really shepherding you. It's just some, some flickering image on a, on a screen in a darkened room. All right. Um, anyways, um, Pearl says, quote, that violates Baptist ecclesiology. He says the satellite campuses may have their own pastor, but they are not totally anonymous from the mother church. The Reverend N. Young, a Southern Baptist and pastor of Fellowship Church in Grapevine, has five satellite campuses in Fort Worth, Dallas, Plano, Hawkins, and Miami, and he's considering satellites in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Madrid. Our satellite locations are doing great, Young said. The Fort Worth cam- uh, campus is already running 2,000. I can't believe it myself. See, the way they determine whether or not... This is the thing. Folks, these church growth types, the only measure they they care about is how many seats are filled every Sunday. They only care about numbers. They don't care about quality. You know, folks, help work with me here for a second. We've all had the experience while we were growing up of receiving gifts, we'll say toys, that were really poorly made. You know what I'm talking about, the really, really cheap, cheesy stuff that you can, you know, that's that's ridiculously low quality, okay? In, in fact, you know, the really cheap plastic bow and arrow kit, you know, that breaks as soon as you draw the bow back for the very first time. We're all familiar with, we've had experiences with very poorly made products, Right now, if we were to complain to the toy manufacturer and say this product is garbage, it doesn't even do what it's supposed to do. 
It broke the first time I used it, and I used it according to the way that it was meant to be used. If the CEO turned around and said, well, that doesn't matter. You've got to realize we've made one million of these. Yeah, but you made one million of them poor quality. No, no, you don't understand. We've made a million of them. We don't care if you've made a million of them. These are cheap and poor quality. I want a refund and I want an, or a replacement, and I, I need the replacement to actually be of good quality and not break. Well, I can give you a replacement, but it's the, it, it, it's the same quality as the one that broke. Well, what good is that? It doesn't matter. We are a successful business because we made and sold a million of these. You see what I'm saying? This quantity argument doesn't pan out in real life. It's quality. Anyway, um, this is uh, still Pastor Ed Young. Quote, we're not a perfect church, but, I, but I'm not as concerned about Baptist ecclesiology as I am about the New Testament. I know that the Apostle Paul's letters got circulated and read in the early churches. We think we're following the New Testament, but with the new technology. No, you're not. You're not preaching Christ and Him crucified, and you're not preaching Christ from all of the scriptures. You're preaching life tips and a changed life and how to, how to have your uh, best life now and how to have the abundant Christian life and how to have a better... Yeah, okay. Anyway, Pearl said that there are many kinds of megachurches, some are more biblical than others, and when asked about the largest church in america lakewood church in houston where joel osteen preaches to as many as thirty thousand people each sunday pearl said this let's face it joel osteen if he adheres to the same theology that his dad john osteen did you uh, you really can't tell by his preaching his dad although disagreed with some of the theologic theology he espoused was much more biblical than his son In the past, Osteen has said he doesn't mention sin and damnation much because people attending already know that they're sinners and need to be given a message of hope. And he ends each of his televised broadcasts with a short message inviting people to accept Jesus as their Savior without even telling them what it means. Even with his criticisms, Pearl doesn't claim that many of the new style churches aren't doing any good. I'm just saying churches need to get rid of uh, need to get rid of historical amnesia and get back to being the church. He said, "We need to declare that we are sinners. Sin separates us from God, and that Jesus Christ is our only Savior." You know, uh, Pastor Pearl, I think your message is falling on a lot of deaf ears, and I think the people that uh, Jim Jones chose to respond to your claims. Uh, exemplify the overall attitude and lack of biblical understanding that is occurring here in America. And the future of the Christian church is really, really in a lot of danger. A lot of danger. Because if we don't get back, if God doesn't grant us a reformation, that we get back to biblical preaching, preaching Christ and Him crucified and get away from all this itching ear stuff that's passing off as Christianity, uh, then Christianity will vanish from the United States. There's two types of famines in the world, folks. There's a bread famine, famine when a country or a people can't feed itself because there's not enough bread. But there's a far more dangerous famine that people can experience, and that's a famine of the Word of God. It's a famine of the Word of God. A bread famine, as terrible as it is, when you see the pictures coming out of children and people starving and then looking like walking skeletons or having the bloated bellies because of, you know, of starvation, it looks terrible and the suffering that goes along with it is awful and miserable. But believe me when I tell you, the worst thing that could happen to a person is not that they die. The worst thing that could happen to a person is, is, that, is the second death, that they be thrown into the lake of fire. 
the, the, the fires of hell prepared for the devil and all of his angels. That's the worst thing. And when there's a famine of God's word, when there's a famine of the preaching of Christ and him crucified, there's a famine of the gospel, that is exactly what happens. People starve to death spiritually. And that's what's happening in a lot of churches today. People are attending church and they are spiritually starving to death because there isn't enough biblical content in the message to fill a gnat's navel. Not enough biblical content to spread over a a small slice of, of bread. That's exactly what's happening in the United States today. All right, we're going to take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to uh, read a little bit more from Mark chapter 12 so that we're you know, making our contribution to getting God's Word out. And then we're going to re- review one of those sex sermons from one of these purpose-driven churches. The name of the sex sermon is Crazy Love. <sighs> and supposedly it's going to unlock the secrets from the Song of Solomon and help you to have... A crazy love relationship in your marriage. And believe me when I tell you, this is probably one of the shallowest sermons I've heard in a long, 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 long time. And I've heard a lot of them. So uh, stay tuned. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, if you would like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on today's show, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's TalkBack at FightingForTheFaith.com, and we will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I Enough of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important work gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Manuge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. 
Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially the theology restored to the church during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Theologia et Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. We're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and I am Chris Rosebro. Hour number two up ahead. Cannot tell you how important it is that we, as Christians, not second guess God. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. He's the one who gets to decide how His kingdom grows. He's the one who gets to pick the methods by which it grows. Not you, not me, not nobody else know how. <laughs> Is that good English? I don't think so. Anyway, all right. Um, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And the reason why we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark is because we think it's important in light of the fact that we're in the middle of a famine of God's word in so many parts of America, we're starving to death in large mega churches, not hearing what God's word actually preaches, teaches, and confesses. So what are we going to do here to, to make our contribution? Well, they say it'd be pretty cruel of you if you were to visit a third world nation that doesn't have uh, any food and you didn't give people food. So we're going to give you some bread today. And it's the bread of the word of God. And this is not to show off my theological prowess because who says I have any of that anyway? Instead, it's to familiarize you with the stories in the word of God in the gospels so that you can teach others. How can you teach others? Well, if you're a father or a mother, read these stories to your children, especially if you're a father and you have an intact family. When you come home from work and you sit down at the dinner table together as a family, when you're done, don't everyone rush to go upstairs, do homework, or go to the television. Stop. Father, pull out the family Bible and start reading. Your children need to be taught the word of God and to be catechized by you. As the head of the household, you are to lay down your life for your family. And one of the ways in which you do that is by teaching them the word of God, but teaching them to find Christ in all the passages of Scripture because Christianity is about what he's done, not what we do. All right, so we're going to read in Mark chapter 12. The last time we read, we read the story, in fact, of uh, uh, Jesus uh, telling the parable of the man who planted a vineyard and ended up sending his son and they killed him. So we read from Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 13. And they sent to him, that's Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. 
All right, we're going to send in our experts and our goal, we're going to parachute in and we're going to catch Jesus. We're going to trap him in his words. So they came to Jesus and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about appearances, but truly teach the way of God. When somebody comes up to you and says that to you as their opening sentence, you need to back up and watch your back because they're about ready to plunge a knife into it. We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, for you for truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this is an interesting part of this story, is that they thought they'd come up with the ultimate catch-22. Why? Well, if you know anything about Jewish history, okay, you know that uh, the Jews were conquered by the Greeks. Okay, during the time of the Maccabean period, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Alexander the Great, I mean, he ruled the whole world, right? And so you have the Hellenists coming in and, and taking over. And they, the Hellenists and the Jews didn't get along too well. And then it wasn't too long after that when the Romans basically took over uh, rule of Palestine. And that didn't go over so well. And from the Jewish experience, the, the, if you were a Jewish man... And you went to work for the Roman government, you were considered to be the traitor of all traitors. Okay? Things could not go worse for you. Now, if you're familiar with the uh, United States Civil War, okay, you're familiar with the North and the South, the Confederates and the Union Army. Well, at, you know, one of the famous generals for the Confederates was a guy by the name of Longstreet, General Longstreet. Okay? It was Longstreet, it was one of the divisions under Longstreet. Pickett, whose division went forward, the Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. Okay, what a lot of people don't know is that after the war, Longstreet became a Republican, and many people in the South, Democrats as they were at that time, considered Longstreet to have committed some kind of a crime against them. He had turned against them. He had become a traitor traitorous and treacherous. So those people who, back in the time of Jesus' day, who went to work for the Romans, they were considered treacherous themselves, traitors to Israel, traitors to God. Okay, One of the most despised groups among them were the tax collectors. I mean, they were not only thieves, they were traitors. They were traitors and thieves. All right, just a very despised group of people. So, and let's just say that the tax system set up by the Romans wasn't exactly fair. It wasn't exactly equitable. And there was a lot of people who made a lot of money on the taxes, and there was a lot of people who found themselves poorer than dirt because of the way the taxes were done. So... Taxes is a hotbed issue in Jesus' day here when Jesus is being, they're attempting to trap Jesus in his words, right? So, I mean, they're thinking, come on, if, if Jesus says, no, you can't pay your tax, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then what's going to happen is, is that Jesus is going to be considered to be a political traitor against the Roman Empire, and they could get rid of him, because remember, the Herodians are part of the group there, right? So you got the Pharisees and the Herodians working together. These two guys normally don't get along. But the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together to trap Jesus. So you got the Pharisees who are there representing the legalists 
you know, the, the, the pure Israelists, and you got the Herodians who are the political guys. And so if Jesus says, no, 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 don't pay taxes, the Romans are vicious, awful, terrible people, and they're nothing but thieves and robbers, then what would happen is, is that the Herodians would basically say that he's guilty of sedition, and, you know, and he would be arrested, and he would be beheaded for saying such a thing, right? Well, actually crucified for it. But uh, whereas the Pharisees, if Jesus said, pay your taxes, they were going to make sure that Jesus, um, you know, is considered to, you know, to, you know, to be a traitor against Israel. And he won't be as popular because he said something as terrible as pay your taxes. Okay. That's the catch 22. And believe me, they put a lot of thought into this. All the right players are in the right place at the right time. They, they think there's no way Jesus is going to get out of this. But verse 15 says this, but knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And so they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, so render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And they marveled at him. Amazing. <laughs> What's that line from the, uh, from the Princess Bride, you know, about uh, a, a, a duel to the death, you know, and regarding, uh, you know, a mind game with a Sicilian? I forget. I have to find it. You don't get yourself in a battle of wits. Oh, that's the word. Don't get yourself into a battle of wits with a Sicilian with death when death is on the line. That's the line from The Princess Bride. Folks, you can't get yourself into a battle of wits with God and human flesh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. No way, Jose. You're not going to outwit, outthink, outsmart, or trap Jesus. He will always come out on top. <laughs> it's, it's just it's brilliant. Oh, man. All right. So now we're going to, we've come to that time in the program where we do our sermon reviews. And unfortunately, it's another stinker. <laughs> but it, it's a good stink. No, it's not. It's really not a good stinker, but it's a stinker nonetheless. So uh, the, uh, the story, uh, hang on a second here. Let me pull up the stinky sermon here. It's, um, do, do, do. it's from Keystone Church. Okay. In, uh, in, Keller, Texas, Keystone Church in Tel Keller, Texas. And the name of the sermon is Crazy Love Attraction. Why am I playing this sermon? Well, the reason why I'm playing this particular sermon is because it just seems like right now all of these purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive, you know, attractional churches are obsessed with the sex topic. And they think they're so brave, and they think they're so helpful, and they think that this is exactly what Jesus would have them do. And when you hear the, the, the content of the sermon, I mean, oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> I apologize. I guarantee you this, the content of the sermon will be underwhelming. That's probably the best way to describe it. So without any further ado, here is Goat Herder Brandon Thomas from Keller Church in, I mean, sorry, Keystone Church in Keller, Texas on Crazy 
love. Welcome to the Keystone Church Podcast. Each week you'll be able to listen to Brandon's most recent message. For more info about Keystone Church, please visit keystonechurch.com. Y'all thought I was kidding about Beyonce, didn't you? (laughs) I wasn't. Well, we're launching a new series today called Crazy Love, and some of you are asking the big question, what about those billboards? You know, you've seen the billboards, maybe if you've driven around town. Yeah, that's right. Um, Keep this in mind that if your seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven church is going to have a sermon on sex then it's obligatory for you to go out and let everybody all over the uh, all over your neighborhood know you're doing a sex sermon by taking out salacious billboards, sending out salacious postcards, you know, like you know, offering red hot sex or sex for sale or something at your church. And I wish I was making all this up. If you're not convinced by what I'm saying, go to the Museum of Idolatry. Go to the section called Christian Erotica. That's We have a wing in the Museum of Idolatry. It's called the Christian Erotica wing. And we also have another wing called Purpose Driven Madness. There's some of that in there too. By the way, the Museum of Idolatry, you can find it at www.littleleaven.com. Littleleaven.com. And uh, check, just browse through the Christian Erotica wing and you'll see, and the Purpose Driven Madness wing, and you will see. Example after example after example of purpose-driven, seeker-sensitive marketing pieces. Why? Because I think the reason why these guys have these sex sermons is they look at their attendance, look at their tithing numbers, and go, well, we've hit a slump or a plateau. It's time to have a push to grow the church. And uh, so we're going to do an evangelism. We're going to do an evangelism series. And what's their version of evangelism? It's... um, preaching sex sermons and letting everybody know about it. So here Brandon Thomas is telling us that they took out billboards, letting everybody know about their crazy love sermon series. Now one of them says, Susan, please, please forgive me. Another one says, Brandon, I forgive you. We have others that are up. We have one that, uh, that's, I think, going up this week that says, baby, I will love you forever. Another one says, Susan, you are beautiful. You drive me crazy. And all of these billboards are reflective of what we're about to jump into. See, those are private comments that normally we would keep between each other. And some of you have flooded Susan with the question, what did he do? (laughs) I mean, how bad was it? And uh, actually, those are private conversations, private comments that normally would be just between Susan and me. Why did you put them on a billboard? But now they're for everyone to see, and that's exactly what we're about to dive into. The book of the Song of Solomon, otherwise known as Song of Songs, is a collection of conversations between a husband and a wife, normally intimate, normally just for them, but printed in the pages of the Bible for thousands of years, preserved for millions of people to read like billboards for people to learn from. The Song of Solomon is where we are launching into today as we will learn how to experience crazy, crazy love. (laughs) 
Oh, did Jesus die for your sex life? <sighs> Man, what do they do? In, I mean, is this the Christian sermon version of Viagra? <sighs> you see, when we think of love, often it's through the filter of romantic love, just a simple romantic love, like statements like, you know, I just want to have someone that's going to make me laugh every day. Or I want to have, you know, bachelor comment. That's what I call that. You know, the, I want somebody to make me laugh every day. I'm like, then don't get married. Uh, got a question. Uh, Pastor Brandon Thomas, uh, are you a licensed marriage and family therapist? I, or, you know, what's your theological training? Are you qualified to be giving us a sermon on how to... Uh, sermon, that's the stupidest word here. doesn't fit. Um, are you qualified to be teaching on what you're teaching on? We're going to find out here in a second because... <laughs> stay tuned, folks. This this seminar, it... Wow, it's so... <laughs> it's so underwhelming, it's not even funny. Right? <laughs> Woo! Reason. Reason, anyway. I want someone to make me happy, as if someone could make you happy. These are romantic comments sent through the filter of the romantic grid for happiness. And crazy love is a totally different thing. Crazy love is a type of love that you can explore and experience that defies common logic. Crazy love is a kind of love that can last a lifetime. Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 1, it says this. So apparently the Song of Solomon was written so that you and I could experience crazy love. <sighs> this is Solomon's Song of Songs more wonderful than any other. This book that we're diving into today is literally a poem. It's Hebrew wisdom and poetry, and it is written poetically. It could be called a song, and if it's a song, it's Billboard's Top Ten. Okay, hold on a second here. Just, I want to point something out to you. He is correctly telling us that the genre of this book of the Bible is poetry. Let me ask you this question. Okay, you guys out there, we've all bought these books in, in magazines, how-to books, okay? There's some really good books like at Home Depot and at Lowe's. If you go, they have, all of these places have book sections, okay? And they teach you how to fix things, you know, in your house, fix things in your plumbing. You, you understand what I'm saying? They're how-to books. They're kind of like recipe books, you know, so, so that you can learn more about how to, you know, how to be a handier do-it-yourselfer, like how to lay tile, you know, how to install hardwood floors, things like that. I mean, they walk you through it step by step by step, okay? When you want a how-to book on how to experience, uh, how to, you know, fix your house or how to fix something in your life, like learn how to lose weight or get, become healthier or to, you know, be psychologically happier and things like that. Do you go to the how-to self-help section in the bookstore, or do you go to the poetry section? You go to the how-to section, or self-help. Poetry was, is not designed to be a how-to, okay? 
cerebrally cutting up and dicing up poetry and turning it into self-improvement, self-help steps doesn't make any sense at all. It makes as much sense to try to make spaghetti using dog food. It's the wrong ingredient. You don't do that. It's at number one, it has the record for the most long-standing on top of the charts. It is the song that beats all the other songs. Just like you read in the Bible and you hear them say that he is the king of all kings when speaking of Jesus. This is the song that beats all other songs. And the great word for this as we launch into it is this book teaches us how to have a different kind of love than maybe what you've grown up experiencing. This book teaches us how to experience what I would call a redeemed kind of love. A kind of love that is the type of love that only happens when God invades your life and changes you from the inside out. Okay, so okay, we're being told that he's going to teach us the Song of Psalms, and God's going to give us a redeemed love and change us from the inside out. I mean, he's setting this up. I've got some big expectations for this book at this point. I mean, this better be crazy or I want my money back. This is a kind of love that's tithe money of where once you've invited Christ to step out of heaven and make his home in your heart, something happens. That was weird. Once you've invited Christ to step out of heaven and invade your heart. Huh? That's Pelagian or semi-Pelagian at best. We continue. And it enables you to love with the love of God himself. So as you apply these principles, it should not only draw you closer to your God-given potential between you and your spouse, but it should also draw you closer to your God-given potential between you and your spouse. See, apparently every relationship has a God-given potential, but you've got to apply the right principles in order to unlock it and get to it. This is another watered-down version of the law, isn't it? So be reminding you and leading you to a infatuation love with God himself. And so thus we dive in to the book. Over the next few weeks, we will talk about conflict. This book is real about conflict. And when you have Jesus in your life, how does conflict work itself out? This book is real about how to communicate, how to talk with one another. It's poetry. It's not a how-to manual. How to share with one another. This book is real about sex. We're going to talk about sex. Yes, sex in the church. You're so brave. Everyone's doing that now. We're going to talk about it. And it's real about sex and God's design for sexuality. It's all over the book. And then today we start with attraction. The lightning bolt of romance. (laughs) Attraction. So Jesus is now your personal sex therapist. Okay? Apparently, Jesus has set it up that that in your marriage relationship or whatever relationship you're in, there's a potential. There's an intimacy potential that you have... You've got to figure out what the right principles are in order to unlock this... Using this knowledge that he's going to convey to you, then you, you, he's going to give you knowledge that you then can apply the principles so that you can unlock this and, and, and work towards and achieve this potential, this God-given potential. And, yeah, we continue. We're going to dive into attraction. But first, the purpose of this book, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, the Bible says, Place me like a seal over your heart. Not seal, oh, oh, but seal like tattoo, Okay. 
Like, I want to be a tattoo on your arm. I want to be a tattoo on your heart. Like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Its jealousy is enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. And what this is saying is that there is a love found in a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ that can endure time. I don't know anybody when they stand on their wedding day, be that before a church, in front of friends, in front of a priest, in front of a pastor or a judge, who would not say, man, this is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. This is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. I want an enduring kind of love. I want our love to last a lifetime. And here we see that there is a love that can last a lifetime. Now, for some of us, that may seem crazy. That may seem crazy because you're in the middle of a relationship that could be very difficult. Why is that crazy? Because um, don't the marriage vows still have that till death do us part thing? I don't know anybody who is really excited about just moving from spouse to spouse. You know, hey, you know, I've got this year's model of spouse in and, you know, she's awesome, but I can't wait till next year's model. (laughs) Just a word to those of us that are single in the house this morning. The loneliest people I know are not single looking for love. The loneliest people I know are married and in a dead relationship where they feel like they can't get out. They feel like they're isolated. They feel like they're unknown. They just walk past somebody every single day like ships passing in the night. God says, man, you could do better than that. You can do better than that. You can have a crazy kind of love. And if you're in the middle of that dry place, as I read earlier, today God wants to bring you a refreshing water of attraction. I'm going to stop there, okay? I believe that marriage, given as a gift by God, that what God intended for marriage, we don't even have the foggiest notion of how spectacular that that really would have been in our fallen state. Part of the curse impacts our marriage relationships and marriage is tough and hard right now. Marriage is tough and hard in this, in this lifetime. It's not easy. It takes work. It takes commitment. It takes struggling and it takes more than attraction to get you through it. Because when the warm pitter patters of your heart fade, and they come that, that warm pitter patter stuff kind of comes and goes. You need something else to get you through it. Uh, let's find out what his solution is. You can rediscover attraction today. Song of Solomon. Okay, you guys ready? We're going to rediscover attraction. He's promised us that. I mean, he's really built this up. Chapter 1, verse 2. It says, kiss me and kiss me again. For your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like it's spreading fragrance. 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 Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. No wonder all the young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. Here we see something fascinating. Okay, I'm going to stop. <laughs> okay. We are reading poetry. Song of Songs is poetry, okay? Let me read to you some of this poetry, okay? Because it's spectacular. It really is. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. 
verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your past, where your pasture, you flo- your, <clears throat> where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you with my love to mar to mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Okay, now that's that's the flavor, context of what we're reading in the Song of Songs. This is pure, romantic poetry. And I think God put this in here, really, to appeal to us on a far different level that God created within us than just the right brain, mathematical, how-to instruction. There's something else in here than that. But we continue with the sermon. So keep that in mind as we listen to how he, Brandon Thomas, that is, explains this text. It's not Solomon speaking, it's his wife. And Song of Solomon is an interesting book because it's kind of like the show Lost. I don't know if we have any fans of the show Lost. I'm a huge fan. Yeah, okay. I like the show. I love it. I've been in since day one. And Lost is like a series of, you know, you, fla- you flash back into the past. You flash forward. Into, it's just the series of flashbacks. It's like, uh, it's like everything's on shuffle. Well, that's this book too. It's a series of flashbacks and flash arounds and, and it just, it, it jumps around. And here is this bride looking back on her wedding night. And it's as if they've just gotten married and it is their wedding night. And she says, now, if you've had this notion of the Bible, if you've had this notion of the Bible where women are subjugated and men are like, I'm king at the expense of women, I want you to know this smashes your image of the Bible and of God. Because here we have a woman initiating the sexual encounter. Here we have a woman initiating romance. Initiating. And she says... Kiss me and kiss me again. What does that say? If you want to have attraction, attraction needs to be mutually initiated. What? (laughs) What? 
he got that out of the text. Apparently, the big, the big principle here, and see, this is the problem with reading the Bible this way. Uh, the big principle that he has gleaned from the opening verses to the Song of Songs is that if you want to have attraction, then um, intimacy must be mutually initiated. You have got to be kidding me. That's your takeaway from this? What would Solomon say to us today if you want attraction in your relationship? Initiate attraction. That's not what the passage said. Oh, man. Uh, The blind leading the blind here. Uh, Let me kiss him with the kisses of his mouth. For your your love is better than wine, your anointing oils. So apparently verse 2, the opening of verse 2 is uh, the, the thing that you're supposed to understand from this. The thing that the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, when he inspired Solomon to write these passages. What the Holy Spirit was actually secretly communicating to you, even though you can't see it here, is that if you want attraction in your life, then, then it needs to happen using mutual initiation of intimacy. Give me a break. Initiate it. And not just one person initiating it, both people initiating it. You see that she says, or uh, she says later in verse 4, take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. What she's saying is, man, kiss me. I'm initiating. Let's talk. Let's go. I love you. I'm so excited to be with you. This is the night I've dreamed of. And, oh, but I want you to initiate too. Come take me. Uh, The text doesn't say any of that. You know, okay, here I am. I'm out on a limb. This is the way I feel. Are you going to accept me or reject me? And I want you to come and initiate with me. The text doesn't say that. It's powerful. It's a lie. If you want to have an attractive romance, it's not something that's initiated by one person. And far too often, our relationship... Are you actually scripting this off of a different source in the Bible? Because I feel like you're reading this into the Bible. Because I'm not reading it out. I'm not seeing it in there. You're reading that in. This is a form of sexual eisegesis. Ships are defined by one person initiating. And that may mean, kind of like a little confession here, in my relationship this past week, in the middle of the week, Susan and I were sitting talking. And she said, I really don't want to know about your relationship with your wife. said, oh, by the way, um, do I need to, you know, get a babysitter or anything? T-M-I. <laughs> and I was like, don't. You know, like, Scooby-Doo, huh? And uh, I said, uh, uh, yeah, you know, of course, you know, we're going to, yeah, we're going out Monday night because I totally blew it. I totally forgot. Our schedules got crazy. That's right. Give me the hateful looks right now. Because, and Susan has this need and we've talked about it and I blew it on this occasion. And she, her need is for me to anticipate those special days. For me to anticipate those romantic moments and for me to bring something to the table where she doesn't have to always bring it up, right? And on this occasion, I blew it. Sometimes I hit it, sometimes I miss it. And on this occasion, I totally missed it. So apparently you weren't living up to your God-given relationship intimacy potential there. And so, guys, initiating may mean that you're making space for romance, and you're initiating it. She- and you got all of this out of Song of Solomon chapter 1, verse 2, which says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for 
your love is better than wine. Okay. She's not always having to remind you, oh, you know, our anniversary, you know, she's not always having, or on the flip side, if the guy is the only one initiating sexual romance, 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 where he's chasing her around like Pepe Le Pew all the time, that's not right either. You know, if you're the only one initiating romance, then you have an unhealthy relationship and God would say that that's not the way it should be. Both parties equally engaged in the romance department, both parties and roles can change and all that. But God says both parties engaging in. And what is a huge, uh-huh. huge blinking light that initiating is happening, that attraction is happening? What does she say? Kiss me. Kiss me again. What translation is he reading? Okay, let me see. May he kiss me with the kisses. Okay, so it's not she saying it. In both the ESV and the NASB, the implication is is that she says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. It doesn't say kiss me. It says, may he kiss me. Uh, ESV says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let me see the NIV. Um, let him kiss me with the kiss. Yeah, what is he reading? Is he reading the message? Hang on a second here. <clears throat> We're going to be checking. Just doing a little. Okay, Bible Gateway dot org. I think. Yeah. Okay. By the way, if you if you need a quick Bible on the internet, BibleGateway dot com is a decent place to go. Um, song one. Let's see here, and I want to see this in the message. See if he's got this right. The message. All right, here we go. Update. Kiss me full on the mouth. Yes, for your love is better than wine, headier than your aromatic oils. Yep. He's actually reading this from the message. Um, well, well it could be the living, too. The, anyway, the point is, is that he's not reading this from a good translation. And... So the point that he drew about mutual whatever you know initiation of intimacy, I mean that might actually be a valid point for a sex therapist to bring up in a counseling session, but that's actually not what the text says. When you read it in a good translation, you realize that he's actually exegeting it wrong because he's not exegeting it from a good translation. All right, we continue. One of the blinking lights that a romance is happening is that you are kissing. What does she say? Kiss me. Kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. In one verse, we have kissing and wine. And all- so how do you, how, you want some real attraction in your marriage? You better get kissing. Because that's what Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 2 says. You better get kissing. All the Baptists left the room. That's where I came from, so I can knock it all I want, right? <laughs> but that's it. And she's saying, man, this is, this is romance. This is happening. I love it. Let's go, you know? What's she saying? A blinking light of romance? Kissing. It's never ceased to amaze me how one of the signs that romance is fading is married couples stop kissing. They stop kissing. Oh, man. You think? I mean, serious. If you if your relationship is struggling, 
How much kissing do you think is going to be going on there? Do you think kissing causes you to have a good relationship or that kissing is the fruit of a good, intimate relationship? Uh, personally, my bet is going to be with uh, that kissing is one of the fruits of a good, healthy, intimate relationship. It's not what causes it. There's something powerful about the kiss, isn't there? Susan, uh, one of my little girls had a sleepover and with her cousins, and they went to a movie this weekend. And, uh, and so they were watching the Hotel Dogs, whatever. Not into it myself, but went to go see Hotel with Dogs. And I guess there's a kiss at some point. And Susan said all these little first and second graders were like, Ew! And isn't it amazing how whenever Susan and I are like hugging and maybe I'll give her a little kiss, all the, the girls are like, oh, dad, oh, you know, it's like they're freaking out. <laughs> There's this power in your expression of romance that expresses its way through a kiss. There's power in it. I grew up in a home. Love it. She's here. I grew up in a home where my dad was affectionate with my mom. And I, you know, I didn't like it at the time. But you know what? It fed something inside of me that it's okay to be affectionate and it's healthy and it's good. And I would encourage you, don't stop kissing. All right. So far, I think that the the God's word to um, his word ratio, God's word is probably running about one or two percent. This guy's idea is running about 98%. Because I'm, I don't see this as a how-to book and that kissing, some, the, 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 the kissing principle. I, I'm just not seeing it. You know, for this, for this series, I actually approached Susan as I was studying this. I came to this and I was like, okay, so if I'm godly, I'm kissing. All right. So I, I went to Susan. I said, oh, man. Uh, Seriously, he could not biblically argue his way out of a wet paper bag. Said Susan, you know, I want to do a little research and development for this series. <laughs> I want to know the benefits of good kissing. So I think we need to, I need to research this. And so she sat me down at the computer. <sighs> and said, why don't you Google benefits of kissing? Apparently not living up to that attractional God-given intimacy quota that he's potential that, never mind. And I did. <laughs> and I Googled it. And wouldn't you know, on WebMD. You would hope that he had the safe search on. Indeed, there are actually some, some health benefits of kissing. Did you know that? It is true. First health benefit, it says that it gives you total stress relief. It gives you a relaxed state of mind. I kid you not. Go. Is it kissing itself that causes the relaxed state of mind? Just physically going up and kissing my wife. Is that going to give me a complete relaxed state of mind? Or is it the intimacy within that prompted me to that kiss? My love for her. Google it. <laughs> Be careful where you Google, though. But... Uh... <laughs> It gives you a relaxed state of mind. Second benefit. <sighs> yeah, none of this is in Song of Solomon, by the way. Not only are you de-stressed, second benefit, it actually is healthy. It, like, helps you lose weight. Did you know that? Really? 
Well, let's market that one on the infomercials. It's the brand new and improved kissing diet. You Do you want to shed those unwanted, unsightly pounds? Then we've got the plan for you. Just follow our six easy kissing steps. Using only kissing, you can be skinny as a rail in only four short days. Helps you lose weight. Studies have been shown that when you kiss... Right. When you're kissing right and you're, you're kissing good, you burn up to two calories a minute. Two calories a minute. That's 120 calories in an hour. See, we, we don't need a... Who needs a gym? What we need... Are kissing romantic intimacy suites. First of all, what kind of kissing is that? Is it like, you know, I'm on the treadmill kissing. Um, and then two calories a minute. I mean, really, how long do you have to kiss before it really does anything, right? A long time. Right. So, all right, whatever. And then my father-in-law's a dentist. My brother-in-law's a dentist. They're dentists together. I bet they didn't know, or maybe they did, that kissing is actually good for your teeth. <laughs> Call my dentist quick. Quick. <laughs> I could just see my dentist saying, You know, Chris, you know, I told you about flossing, right? Yeah, you've told me about flossing, doctor. I've told you about the importance of brushing your teeth, right? Yes, yes, sir. You've told me about the importance of brushing my teeth. Now, have I told you the importance of, like, using, you know, some kind of a antibacterial mouthwash, like, you know, Listerine? Yes, uh, doctor, you've, you've told me about Listerine. You've told me about flossing. You've told me about Listerine. How about regular checkups? Yes, yes, yes. You've told me about that. Have I told you about kissing it? I, I see that you've got plaque buildup. And I understand that you are a regular flosser, that you are a regular brusher, and that you use Listerine, but still, you could use some improvement. We need you to be kissing some more, because otherwise your teeth could potentially fall out of your head. I could see it right here on the x-rays that I just took of your mouth just seconds ago. And I'm not going to go into that because it's gross. Moving on. <laughs> and then the final great health benefit is this is the funniest one to me anyway but it actually is a anti-aging thing for your face because i guess they said that you have these muscles under your skin and it's exercising the muscles oh man you know which i once again don't want that picture in my head either of what kind of kissing you're doing yeah mom take a look at that old woman over there she sure is wrinkled well she must not have been kissing enough that's a sign that she didn't live up to her god-given potential for intimacy in her marriage relationship and she just understand what it means to be purpose-driven when it comes to her attractional sex life she could have had crazy love and sure her face wouldn't look like a road map you know what i mean doing to exercise your face muscles but anyway there's great health to kissing these great benefits to kissing that is attraction initiate attraction but you know i'm wondering if he's wearing a lab coat while delivering this important scientific information to us about intimacy because when you read song of songs it's poetry both of you second thing we see is in these verses that we've already started with is bring your best bring your best you want romance in your relationship where is that in the song of songs Bring your best. Song of Solomon 1.3, it says... Oh, Song of Solomon 1.3 says, bring your best. Hang on a sec. 
for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. I, I don't see it. <laughs> Where's the part about bringing your best? Oh, I don't know. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is li- like it's spreading fragrance. Fragrance. Let's <laughs> keep doing that. No wonder all the young women love you. And what she's saying there is, here we are on our wedding night, and we're together. You've got me. You've won me. And yet you're still slapping on the cologne and bringing your best. You're br- <laughs> that is the dumbest interpretation of Scripture I have ever seen in my life. Oh, man, come on. This means that he's bringing his best and putting on cologne. <laughs> bringing your best. You're bringing your best. You dressed up. You cleaned up. You showered up for me. Uh, and there's a strange phenomenon that happens once we find someone that we love. Often, I don't know if it's that we get happy or content or what, but there's this thing where we just start to give up. Like, we're done. I give up. I don't have to try anymore. As a man, you know, we tried so hard. We had these intricate dates where, you know, you're walking down the path and you have friends that are like throwing roses at you. And, 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 uh, y'all had those dates, right? And then, uh, and you had, you know, as women, you know, you're dressing up and primping up. And then that's done. It's over. There's this virus in our, in our romance where we just stop and we stop bringing our best and maybe so if you correctly understand the purpose driven interpretation of song of solomon's chapter one verse three somewhere in between the words maybe if you have a purpose driven decoder badge and you hold it up and at the right angle the, the verse three of chapter one of song of solomon's will transform and morph before your very eyes so that you can actually see the importance of bring your best. That's the biblical principle that's secretly wedged and hidden here in verse 3. Unbelievable. Maybe it'd be a good thing right now, just right here. Let's just break it up. Let's keep it alive. Turn to the person next to you. Actually, turn to your spouse, not the person next to you. (laughs) Turn to your spouse and say, I like what you got going on. Do it. I like what you got going on. (laughs) There's nothing worse than this stupid kind of manipulation. How ridiculously shallow and vacuous. I like what you got going on. Like, if... Like, I need you to help me do that. Come on. In church, where's Jesus Christ? Hello? Hello? Say it. Physically, bring your best. Bring your best. He wore his cologne. And you know, that means... Okay, cologne. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. And your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. I see. Guys, maybe you need to put on some cologne. Not like the kind of cologne you like. I like it. Smells like woods. You know, no, no. (laughs) No, 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 no. You bring... Okay, so far we've got the importance of kissing. The biblical principle of kissing that has all of these health benefits, apparently, including better teeth. (sighs) 
Then we've got the uh, important biblical principle here of of wearing cologne because that's what the see, Song of Solomon's is really actually a how to book. You just didn't know it, you know. And he's thank God for this purpose driven prognosticator who's capable of helping us find the secret purpose driven principles for secret attractional and crazy loveness in this verse. You wear what she likes. You're like, I don't like that fruity stuff. But that doesn't matter. It's not about you. You know, you're trying to draw her in. You're trying to attract her. And I don't know, when I was in high school, it was Dracar Noir. You know, whatever. Whatever that may be. Whatever she likes, whatever appeals to her, do it. It doesn't matter. That means that you groom a little bit. You go from one brow to two, you know? (laughs) You groom a little bit. Right? I'm sure he worked very long and hard on that joke. That means that you're searching out some of the latest fashions and you're, you're bringing your best and you plan ahead and you do your research on what they like and you, you try to go to great lengths to bring them what they want and you're asking little questions that they don't know you're asking and you're asking little questions, getting clues on what attracts them and then you reveal it in its appropriate time and its appropriate place. This is feeding attraction. Bring your best. And this is actually found in Song of Solomon's 1-3. I just don't see it. That means that for me, I like to wear this shirt, okay? This is a muscle shirt. It would help if I had some muscles. But this is a muscle shirt, and, uh, and I like it. It's real comfy, right? But Susan, when she sees me wearing this, she goes into convulsions of the negative sort. <laughs> It's like, she's like, you've got to get rid of that. You've got to get, well, if I want to bring my best, that means the red shirt is going bye-bye. Adios. See ya. Uh, Did I hear claps? Okay. Well, I got you for. And thus speaketh the Lord. Thou must get us rid of thy stinky shirts. And thou must bringeth forth thy best. And only wear thy shirts that bringeth forth thy best. And attract the young virgins to thee. For for the girls too, all right? So here we have... (laughs) This, let's see if we can get it on the screens. This is called the cow shirt. What I call the cow shirt or the moose shirt, whatever. I think she's had this since eighth grade. And it's a far side comic of these cows at a barbecue. It says, you're sick, Jesse. Sick, sick, sick. Anyway, cows at a barbecue. I don't know if you get it. But it is soft and comfy. Well, this is like PJs for Susan. And this is not what I had in mind. Okay? So if you're bringing your best, that means adios, cow shirt, see you later. Yeah, that means you bring your best. So apparently the message to his wife is dump the cow shirt, lady. I don't particularly think you're attractive in it. You know, there are things that can sabotage that. There are things that can sabotage that attraction, even the physical attraction. You can be physically adversely affected by negative emotions. There are emotions that we wrestle with that can sabotage the romance. Okay, we are 20 minutes, 39 seconds into this uh, sermon, if you can call it that. Just, you know, I want to conduct a little experiment here. 
I've uh, got my calculator here on my iPhone, and I just want to do a little calculations. Okay, hang on a second here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to record myself. Well, I'm going to I'm going to time myself actually reading the first three verses of Song of Solomon. Okay, hang on a second here. Here's my clock, and uh, here's my stopwatch. Okay, here we go. I, I just want to do a little calculation here, because this guy's not really telling me nothing about what God's Word says. At least that's what I think, and I think he's really uh, spending a lot of time interjecting some other material here other than biblical material. But, okay, so here we go. I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3, just, you know, for the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to time myself doing it, and I'm not going to rush through it. So here we go. Are you ready? Go. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for by your love, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Okay, that took exactly 14 seconds, and I even stumbled a little bit. Okay. All right, so 14 seconds. All right. Hang on a second here. Just doing a little calculation. You know, because, you know, this guy is taking a poem and, and analyzing it, I don't know, using a lab coat or something here. So we got 14 seconds. Now, we are, according to our calculations, we are now 20 minutes and 39 seconds into this sermon, okay? Now, we've got to figure, in order for me to do this right, I've got to figure out how many total seconds there are in that. So what we've got here, go to my calculator, 60 seconds times 20 equals 1,200, so plus the 39. So total, we have listened 1,239 seconds into the sermon. So what percentage is 14 seconds of 1,239? Hang on a second here. 14. uh, 14 divided by 1,239. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Okay, it's 0.011. Point zero one one. Okay, so point zero one one of this sermon is actually God's word, and the remaining um, portion of it is definitely um, not God's word. Hang on, I just want to do a little quick calculation here. Uh huh. Wait a second here. Mm hmm. Divided by 100. Okay, so uh, total, okay, basically 1.1% of the sermon is God's word. Uh, It has anything to do with it. The the remaining portion of it, which if I take uh, 100 and minus 1.1, 98.9% of everything this pastor is saying, 98.9, has nothing to do with God's word at all. He's not even telling us what it says. He's he's strip mining the Song of Solomon's in a very scientific way to uh, help us to understand the hidden biblical principles there so that we can become attractive. Look at this. In Song of Solomon 1, 5, it says, she begins to say, I'm dark, but beautiful. 
O women of Jerusalem, dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun has darkened my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyards so that I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. What's she talking about here? Yeah, I can't wait to hear your scientific uh, biblical principle approach to interpreting that passage. She is very insecure. What? (laughs) These are words of insecurity. She says, I'm dark. And for us, that'd be like, right on. Because we fake. He's psychologizing her. Bake, tan, spray. We pay to get skin cancer. I mean, that's our culture today. That's like the standard of beauty for us in our culture today for many, many people. But in that day, it was a very agricultural society. So if you were out working and getting a ton of sun... That meant that you weren't wealthy enough to stay indoors and read and play the piano and and hang out and play Xbox and have daily manis and petties. And you weren't wealthy enough to do that. And so the, the standard of beauty in those days was to be lily white. Standard of beauty in those days was I avoided the sun. Because I was just wealthy enough to do that. Well, here we see that she was a, was a girl who was probably brought up in a single parent home like so many of us here at Keystone Church. What? Brought up in a single parent home. And her brothers who, were, who owned the vineyard or who ran the vineyard, they forced her to work. Now, those guys should have been out there working themselves, Right? I mean, these are the brothers. They should have been out there doing the work and loving their sister, their sweet sister. But you know what they did? They were selfish and they sent her. So she has baggage from her family relationships. Can I get an amen on that? You know, you should hear Scott Hodges' sermon about baggage. We just reviewed that on Friday, the baggage sermon. Oh, man. She's got baggage from her relationships that have sent insecurity through her life. And furthermore, it has affected her physical beauty in her eyes. And so she says, I'm not like these sorority sisters over here that, that just look so beautiful. And they're the ideal. I'm a little different. I stand out differently than them. I, I'm, I'm not the standard of beauty. Now, don't hear me when I say bring your best. Just a disclaimer. I am not saying that there is a standard of beauty that you have to starve yourself and abuse your body and abuse your psyche to try to get into this standard of beauty. I'm just saying bring your best. Fashion is great. I believe in fashion. I think it's great. But it's wrong for fashion to have you. Beauty, physical beauty is awesome, but it's wrong for physical beauty to have you. Working out and having a, having a healthy body is a good thing, but it's wrong for, <laughs> you know, like abusing your body even through working out because it's some fascination or working out some insecurities. And here's something that happens with insecurity. Whenever you are insecure and you have that negative emotion, guess what you're doing? You are taking your eyes off of your loved one and you are honing it in on yourself. You are zeroing in on all your negative or what you think are your negative traits. And you're taking your eyes off. And so in a weird way, it's very, very selfish. So he's getting all this insecurity stuff and advice from that portion of the Song of Solomon? That kind of takes away from the whole beauty of the passage here. I mean, good night. I feel like we should cut this thing up and, you know, like... 
burn some of the pages and put them, you know, put them into a little crucible and and then stick it into, you know, a, a spectrometer and and see if we can figure out the uh, the chemical composition of what's going on here. It's a piece of poetry, dude, and it's a piece of love poetry. In a really strange way, it takes your eyes off of the other people in your relationship and it just puts them squarely on you and you're just I you're just you know, I could not I could not survive in this church. <laughs> Oh man, I could not survive. I would, I, as a man, I would go crazy. <sighs> Just assassinating yourself. So what did what did he do? He said this. He said, "You, uh, uh-uh. uh, you are as exciting, my darling, as a mare among Pharaoh's stallions." I'll explain that in a second before you get too offended. Uh oh. I want to cover the ears of the kitties. How lovely are your cheeks, her cheeks, which would receive so much of the brunt of that sun. Your earrings set them afire. How lovely is your neck, enhanced by a string of jewels. We will make for you earrings of gold and beads of silver. I am going to hook you up. We are going shopping. You're going to have beautiful jewelry. Let me tell you something. You are beautiful. And the whole Pharaoh's mare thing. You're as beautiful. See what happened in those days. You know... (laughs) Love poetry, I don't think, is meant to be analyzed like this. There is some wonderful poetry out there, and I think it would absolutely be doing violence to take this... Let's see if we can find the hidden principles here. uh, Here here we go. This is by William Shakespeare. See if you can find the love principles here that we can apply, you know, tips and principles that we can apply here. Uh, Shall I compare these? This is a uh, sonnet written by William Shakespeare. I read... Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, but chances of or nature's changing course untrimmed. But the eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession. Of that fair thou oust. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in the shade. When in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see. So long lives this and this gives life to thee. Okay. Um, I don't have a purpose-driven decoder ring here. I don't know. Hang on a second here. It's one of the principles. Gosh, that was beautiful. I mean, something inside of me really enjoys this. I mean, this is there's, it's learning on a different level. This is not cerebral learning. This is something different. How about sonnet number CXV1? <laughs> Hang on a second. That would be 116. Let me not to marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when an alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh, no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his heights be taken. Love is not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error upon me move proved, I never writ, nor man ever loved. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I don't need to cerebrally cut this up and dice this up. 
we don't read love poetry that way. In fact, I think reading some of this stuff with your wife would would open something up within the both of you. Here we go. How about John uh, uh, Wilby? Love Me Not is the name of the poem. Love me not for comely grace, for my pleasing eye or face, nor for an outward part, no, nor for a constant heart. For these may fail or turn to ill, should thou I ever sever. Keep therefore a true woman's eye, and love me still, but know not why. So hast thou the same reason still to dote upon me ever. You see what I'm saying? Poetry is a different genre. You don't tear this apart like a systematic theology or a self-help book. That's not what this is about. Poetry is something that literally washes over you and you meditate on. Its truths are profound, and in a way they're hidden and veiled. And it only comes about through really careful reading and, and meditating and thinking on it and letting it really sink in. Song of Solomon is like a painting. It's in order to enjoy a painting, you sit in front of it and let your eyes wander and scan over it. Take in the detail, the scene, that character, that movement, this drama, that position, that pose. Poetry is verbal. It's a verbal form of a painting. It's not to be sliced and diced for biblical principles. No, that's not how we live and learn. This touches on it on an aspect of us that's deep within us that God has created. Who can explain how love works? If you talk about the chemistry of it, you still miss the whole point of it. Yes, a beautiful mountain is made of dirt and rocks and leaves and trees. We all know the chemical composition of it, but still... When you climb that one hill to the point where you can actually see the vista in the background with the sun beaming up against the mountain and the clouds and the waterfall, your breath is taken away by the beauty of the whole thing. You don't want, you're not interested in somebody doing a spectral analysis on it and giving you Spock's information about what, well, you know, forget about the beauty part of it. Logic would say that, uh, what's, you see what I'm saying? He's doing great violence and completely missing the point of the Song of Solomon. <sighs> this is poetry. So they would throw out images like you're as cool as Jay-Z. You know, nobody would know what that means in 2,000 years, right? But in, in that day when you said, man, just like Pharaoh's horses, Pharaoh's horses were prized possessions. They were beautiful. Um, people, it, it, when, if he were to say you're as beautiful as Pharaoh's stallions, they would go, ooh, wow, hmm. She must be really beautiful. He would have a carriage that would be drawn by a ton of black, beautiful stallions. And in the center, on the side, they would, he would always have one white stallion. He would always have one. 
And it would show everybody, hey, this isn't just a dignitary. This isn't just a person in the court of Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh because of the white stallion, the one that stands out. And what he's saying there is, you're like the white stallion. All all these other beautiful women are around me. I know that I live in a palatial place. I'm surrounded by wealth. All of these beautiful people, but you stand out to me. Among my 900 other wives. You stand out to me. And then... She, he keeps going in verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Once again, poetry. If I see your eyes are like doves, I'm thinking, doo, 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 right? You're messing up the poetry, dude. But in those days, eyes are like doves. It's a beautiful picture of shape and beauty. And then she says, you are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. His adoration is flowing over into her adoration and, and it's just working. But then she goes negative again in Song of Solomon 2 verse 1. She says, I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon plain, the lily of the valley. Now, I would hear that the first time I read that. I'm thinking, wow, that's beautiful. So she's feeling good about herself. No, the lily of the valley was a very common flower to say, man, see on the plane there, there's a ton of lilies in that valley. I'm just one of the million lilies. I'm just so average. I'm, I'm just like, you know, I just, I don't stand out. I'm nothing special. It's like driving down 183 in Irving and you see a dandelion on the side of the road. No big deal. You know, it's like shepherds walking down the, the, the plain of Sharon basically see a little dandelion or a lily they pick it up smell it for a second but it's of no real value flick it and it's gone and she says that's me i'm not special i'm not unique and what does he say he says like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women here's what he's doing okay he's doing romance jujitsu All right. She says, I'm just a lily. And he says, if you're a lily, then all those other, everybody else is a thorn. I like my dandelion. I like it good. And I got no problem with you. And so what he's, she's throwing all the negativity and he's like refusing to feel it. He's like saying, okay, you don't like your hair curly. I like it curly. Oh, you wish you had straight hair. I like curly hair. Oh, you wish that you, you wouldn't all, you know, whenever you tan, you just get red. I like red. I like it. And it's like relational jujitsu where she can't throw anything at him that he doesn't turn into adoration. And that's another clue that attraction is happening. Adoration. So if you want to understand uh, how to have attraction in your marriage, you need to understand the biblical principle of adoration, which involves relationship jujitsu. He's adoring her. What does that mean? He would not receive the negative image. He would always turn it to the positive. That's adoration. Adoration is a rejection of the brokenness and a focus of the beauty. And that's what God does. God sent his son to take over the broken places and replace it with beauty. That's what he did through Jesus Christ. Uh, Well, that's not exactly the correct metaphor for what Jesus did. Thank you for the gospel crumb, though. I'm glad to see that Jesus made an appearance He wants to heal the brokenness. No, he died for my sins. And replace it with beauty. And that's exactly what Solomon was. No, he he doesn't want to, quote, replace it with beauty. He wants to replace it with his righteousness. He wants to replace my wickedness with his righteousness. Close. I'll I'll give you that. 
He was saying, I refuse to focus on your hang-ups and your insecurities. I'm going to focus on your beauty. That's what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to adore on that. And when he focuses on that, check this out. You know, the passage really is beautiful, how the interplay between the two of them are. You know, in the Song of Solomon, where the gal he says that she's dark-skinned and that she's not really special, and then he he takes what she says and transforms it, and, and basically he sees only the beautifulness, the beauty that is her. The interplay is so beautiful. It really is spectacular. It's neat. It's romantic. It's awesome. In fact, it's almost too awesome to describe in words. And you know the longing that you have in your relationship for such type of intimacy. And sometimes reading about it like this can awaken that within you. But anyway, I'm trying to help this guy out. Let's go back to Solomon's Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 3. It shows what he began to focus on was beneath the surface, an inner sort of beauty, which is another thing. She saw his inner beauty too. Verse 3, how fragrant your cologne. Your name is like it's spreading fragrance. Your name is like it's spreading fragrance. So here we have adoration. And adoration is a beautiful thing. And so many of us, instead of adoring, we pick, 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 pick. Instead of adoring, we chip, 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 chip. We nag, 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 nag. We set expectations, expectations, these huge, high, lofty expectations that nobody could meet. And when somebody misses the mark, you know, they're reaching and trying to grab it. Well, you know, Solomon did also pen the words from Proverbs. What did he say? He says, better to live on the roof of a house, to live on the corner of the roof than under the roof with a nagging woman. (laughs) But when they miss the mark, we just slam and remind them of all their failures. Instead of doing that, Focus on the beauty. And when you focus on the beauty, go straight to the heart. Inner beauty. How fragrant is your cologne? Your name spreads. It seems as though Solomon got a little carried away with himself and he slapped on a little bit too much Old Spice. And when he would leave a spot in the room, it would like waft all over the room. And uh, she said, that's exactly what your name is like. Your name, it fills up a room. And just a word for those of us that are single, dating in the room, students, understand that the dating process is a process through which you are to evaluate someone's name. That's what dating is for. We sometimes think that dating is like a phase of our lives. Like I'm dating, I'm, I'm experimenting with what I like and what I don't like. I'm seeing what kind of guy I like, what kind of guy I don't like. I'm seeing what kind of girl I like, what kind of girl I don't like. So do you feel, I mean, we're 30 minutes and 48 seconds into this sermon, which does, by the way, go on for another 15 minutes, and I'm seriously considering not playing the rest of it. I mean, do you really feel that now you've been equipped? Do you have the tools to have crazy love in your marriage? In your, in your relationships. Has the information that you've received from Pastor Brandon Thomas crossed the threshold to you say, whoa, that's the information I was missing. I was missing the information about kissing and the health benefits of it, of wearing cologne and bringing your best. I was missing the principle of uh, spirit of intimacy jujitsu. <sighs> 
No. I'll be blunt. Just reading some of the poetry from Shakespeare and reading Song of Solomon in context awakens something within me. And a desire to have the kind of relationship that I know is possible. But that... It's only possible through the mercy of Christ. And see, you can actually bring Christ into the Song of Solomon. Now, you've got to be careful when you do it because you don't want to turn Jesus into some kind of a weird bearded girlfriend. That creeps guys out. Stay away from that as far as humanly possible. But understand this. You can see Christ's mercy being played out in the male character. The gal sees herself as unworthy, as ugly. And rather than the response being you're ugly and you're unworthy, you can hear the passage of Romans saying, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for the ungodly. You can see the mercy of Christ extending from Christ through this husband, Solomon, to this woman. Who, from what we gather from the scriptures, is an ordinary person. And every day, nothing extraordinary. Nothing that we would look at or value. And yet through the eyes of love and mercy, all the blemishes are gone. And the only thing that that this scene is perfection. Perfection through the cross. Perfection through mercy. You want intimacy in your marriage? It, It comes from extending to your spouse the same mercy that Christ has extended to you. That's really where intimacy comes from. Because in the short term, We all know how relationships go. You have the hots for a little bit of time. Things kind of simmer down. It's like the beginning portions of a relationship. Both the the parties have the afterburners on. And eventually you get to altitude and the afterburners go off. And now you've got a journey to travel together. And sometimes the journey is difficult. It's stormy. It's hard. It's difficult. And other times it is just spectacularly great. And through the hard times and through the daily battle, the grind of having children, of getting up in the middle of the night, of having sick children, of, of homework and school and going to work and not getting the pay, pay raise or having a, you know, being laid off from your job and then dealing with school and with homework and with taking the kids to these different activities and, and all of the things that you have to do in a day or a week, it's easy to lose sight and have the intimacy in your relationship really kind of look like something that you can only see through the rearview mirror. But when husbands lay down their lives for their wives, the way Christ loved the church, and bring mercy and grace into the relationship, women follow suit, and that mercy and grace is reflected back. And so even in the Song of Solomon... We see Christ's mercy and the cross at work. 
But it can't be reduced down to principles. This is something far deeper and far bigger than that. This is faith showing itself and being active in love and mercy. All right, we're at the end of our program. I think you got the point there. I want to remind you that Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio, which means that we depend upon you in order to pay our bills, pay our salaries, and to be able to continue to bring you this important radio outreach. Would you partner with us? You can do so a couple of ways. One, you can log on to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Donate button. Donate button. That's the quickest and easiest way to do it. If you would like to send a check, you can. You can make the check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, we're at the end of our program. If you would like to send me an email and sound off on any of the things that you've heard on today's show, challenge me on something that I've said. You could do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until tomorrow, may God bless you. <laughs>